Hello and welcome to Poetry Blokes, the podcast where one bloke likes poetry and the other doesn't. I'm Matthew Adamo, failed novelist, third-rate poet, and now a beleaguered poetry teacher. And I'm Rich Gochran, a moderately successful engineer and lifelong lover of things that actually matter, like football, cricket, and the ability to make stuff out of wood. I don't hate poetry, but I do think it's a lot of words, in a confusing order, to say very little. Join us in this series of podcasts as we rummage into the recesses of Rich's mind, pull forth any literary force that may be lying dormant, and see if the world's most literal man can acquire the soul of a poet. He doesn't even believe in souls, so I've got my work cut out already. In this episode, we'll be looking at An Arundel Tomb by Philip Larkin. Side by side, their faces blurred, the Earl and Countess lie in stone, their proper habits vaguely shown as jointed armour, stiffened pleat, and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-Baroque hardly involves the eye, until it meets his left-hand gauntlet, still clasped empty in the other, and one sees, with a sharp tender shock, his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see, a sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away. How soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read. Rigidly, they persisted, linked through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell, undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. And up the paths, the endless altered people came, washing at their identity. Now, helpless, in the hollow, of an unarmorial age, a trough of smoke in slow suspended skeins above their scrap of history. Only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon and to prove our almost instinct almost true. What will survive of us is love. So Rich... What's that all about? Hello, Matt. Hello. So, this poem, as far as I can tell, is about erosion. Do go on. <laughs> so they're, Matt, they're hooked now, Rich. They're all hooked now. <laughs> as usual, Matt, you've given me something that's almost impossible to read. I found it really difficult. But was it the words? It was the the words, the order therein, and the punctuation really threw me. To be honest with you, I'm not really sure what this one's about. But as usual, I'm going to give you my general vibe. (laughs) Give it a bash. (laughs) And you can tell me just how accurate or inaccurate you think I am. So, we've got two dead people. Correct, yes. Your favourite theme. My favourite theme. Well... This is a point I have made in my notes, Matt. This poem is about time and death. 
Yes, but also love. Yeah, but that's third in the list. It's mainly about time. Fourth in the list. Erosion, time, <laughs> death. <clears throat> so there's two dead people. There's an earl and a countess. And they have been immortalised in stone on their tomb. It doesn't really mention tomb anywhere other than in the title. So it's a bit of an assumption there from me. But I'm guessing that Pip has gone to Arundel for a day out with his family. Mm-hmm. don't know if he had a family or not. Um, they've gone to, I'm guessing, the cathedral. Was it an abbey? One of those sort of places. Uh, or the castle in Arundel. They've viewed the tomb. And he's been struck by two main things that he's noticed, really. Number one, they don't really have any faces. So I get that from very early on in the poem. Side by side, their faces blurred. The Earl and Countess lie in stone. Blurry-faced, that's what they are. And I obviously knew he was talking about the tomb by this point. And my first thought was that the stonemason wasn't very good at doing faces. I thought maybe <laughs> <laughs> he walked in and he's like, faces are hard, boss. So um, don't worry, don't worry, though, leave it to me. So the faces are blurred because absolutely absolute charlatan of a stonemason couldn't do it. Is that like his boss comes over? You go, is that how they? Is that how they do it? And he goes, it's a new thing. It's a new style. Blurry face. <laughs> oh, you see, yeah, that's how they died, boss. Well, back in the day, they'd just be like, that's what they do in France. And everyone was like, okay, great. Because that's basically, <laughs> England was just ripping ripping fashion off of France for about 400 years. They'd be like, no, 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 it's big, it's big in France, big in tombs in France, just the old blurry face. Well, I did wonder if they had died in a horrible accident and they'd taken both their faces clean off. <laughs> <laughs> As they were approaching the drawbridge, somebody made a mistake. They were like, just started bringing it up anyway. Just as they arrived, the drawbridge came up and <laughs> straight off. Um, and so the stonemason <laughs> was like... so gross. Is it too vivid an image? Sorry. It's very vivid image, yeah. But it's just that it's just clean off. It's the, it's the bit that really struck me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how did it die? Oh, God, the faces. Took them clean off. <laughs> but he, he couldn't do faces, but he was really good at dogs. So towards yes. the end of that stanza, he's like... And that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. So the stone race was like, chip, 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 chipping away at the faces. Oh, I've made an absolute mess of that. How can I make up for this? I'll tell you, what am I good at? I'm really good at dogs. So if I carve two of the finest dogs you've ever seen at the base of their feet, everyone will go straight to the dogs. They're not going to worry about the faces. <laughs> I just imagine the boss being like, did they have dogs? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they had dogs. Yeah, yeah two, dogs. Of, two, two of them, had two of them. Oh, God. And they looked exactly like that. <laughs> they loved hanging around their feet, those dogs. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds in order. Carry on. <laughs> Great work. Keep up the good job. So, yes, uh, you've got the, the Count and the Countess are dead. They've been immortalised in stone on their tomb, uh, but the faces are a bit dodge. And then the thing that Pip picks up on is that they are holding hands and specifically that the Count, no, not the Count, sorry, the Earl, should get his title right, be respectful, the Earl. <laughs> slagged off his face. I didn't oh, slag off. Oh, he had a lovely face before it, was, it came clean off. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, go on. Um, we'll never know what his face is like because of the shit stone racing. Oh, no. <laughs> Bleep. Yeah, so he's taking his hand out of his gauntlet to hold his lady's hand. So uh, that's nice. And Phil makes a big deal of this. He thinks this really means something. 
but I don't know what he thinks it means. I think he's counterpointing the military harshness of the gauntlet against or with the tenderness of the act of holding hands. So he's basically saying, you look at the gauntlet and you think fighting, knights, all that sort of stuff. You do. And he, oh, hold, hold, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. It's bloody empty. And where's the gone? Oh, it's in her hand. That's lovely. Wasn't expecting that. Really takes it to heart, doesn't he, old Phil? Well, I thought maybe he doesn't like public displays of affection. And he was thinking, get your hand back in the gauntlet. Did he just like step back three or four times, gasping like, <gasps> when he saw them touch hands? He was, like, well, disgusting. he does, yeah. In a, in a cathedral of all places, Rich. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Not the time nor the place. Nobody likes a PDA. It's disgusting. Get a room. Keep your grubby hands to yourself. F- Phil is taken aback by this. He, he He's with a sharp, tender shock. I've never had a sharp, tender shock, I don't think. Well, he's, he's done that again, hasn't he? He's put two conflicting concepts together. Yeah. It's confusing, isn't Can it? Can he have a sharp, tender shock? I think what he's saying is he's had he had a, like a Ooh, sort of shock, like, oh, wow, it really struck him. But it was a, a shock <laughs> of tenderness because it's all about lovey-dovey holding hands. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Not happy it? with that. Richard's not happy with that. I don't get it. I don't know why. How would you express tenderness? Um, a nice, firm pat on the back. <laughs> How would you express tenderness if you were an earl? In the Middle Ages. Ooh, I would love to be an Earl in the Middle Ages. That is a good gig. Yeah, sounds great. Tenderness, though? I, I'm not going to have your head chopped off. There we go. Yeah. Tender. I'm going to levy a fair tax. <laughs> yes. I'm only going to take 14% of your turnip haul. <laughs> yeah. You're only going to have to fight for me twice this year. I'm going to get you back in plenty of time for the harvest, lads. <laughs> I'll keep you close to home for this one. Yeah, you can call me El Tender if you want. <laughs> Who would you, if you had to raise a standing army mm. and then take them to fight, who would you fight? Again, middle age, middle ages. Oh, I mean, anybody, anyone who's in the way. Right? Yeah. Mercia, I reckon. I don't know why, just Mercia. I mean, where are you based? That's a long way to go for a scrap. Yeah, but... They've been goading me for ages, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get what's coming. Thumbing their nose at me. Wow. Take that. Me and my turnip army, turnip warriors, take you down. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Philip Larkin, yeah. he's, he's, he's taken aback by the hand in glove. Morrissey reference there. What um, comes next? They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness and effigy was just a detail friends would see. This is Phil thinking... Yeah, this is a real insight. This is a tender moment that's been been captured here. And he seems almost sort of surprised to see it. Well, you have to wonder, with the opening up of this tomb, you assume that it's a familial tomb or, you know, the, the tomb of people from the surrounding areas. Yeah. When they died and they were buried, obviously they, were, they prepared their burial in advance, hence this tomb having been constructed for them. Yeah. They probably got buried in a private chapel or in at least in a secluded part of the church slash cathedral slash abbey. And of course, it was during a time when Christianity was much more a part of everyday life than it is today. So he's saying there, well, these these two people thought they were going to be buried in their local chapel and that only their friends or family would come to see them because, of course, it's like the 15th century or something. So there's no there's basically no travel. Yeah, as a rule of thumb, though, if you don't want 
people to see something about yourself, best not to, you know, immortalize it in stone, isn't it really? That's a that's a misstep on their part. <laughs> yeah, but they're both gentry, aren't they? So it makes a reference to that stanza before. Or he says, a sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. Hmm. So he's sort of making a reference there that they've done the tomb thing because they're people of standing and they've got Latin appellations. So they're obviously important people and they want to show everybody else for the in perpetuity that they are important. But they hadn't expected globalization or modernization or Philip Larkin to just come wandering around. Yeah, it is tough to know what the future's going to be. Have you started planning your tomb yet? Oh man, I wouldn't even get into that. <laughs> There's another poem, maybe we'll do it sometime. Um, Ozymandias, where it talks about a, a fallen statue in the desert surrounded by nothingness, but that was a symbol of something that came before. And the poem is sort of about the pointlessness of that power because you know, it was a big imposing statue, but now the empire's gone. So what does it mean? <laughs> I just thought it'd be great to have a really big statue, wouldn't it? <laughs> or, a, or a bust. I think a bust is excellent. Yeah. Well, as you know, I would love to have a, a large bronze bust of myself. That was, I mean, funny story. My family friend has recently passed and my dad received a gift from his friend. And that gift is a two times life-sized bronze bust of his head <laughs> of the friends the, friend, the friend's head the friend yeah. that passed sent it to your father a bust twice the size of his own head in real life yes absolutely which is now mothers which now resides in my dad's garage and said he figures out what to do with it and i was talking with him the other day about what he intends to do with it and another little insight into my family uh, every christmas we have a a gift that gets passed around the family, right? And this gift is the world's most annoying alarm clock. So it's, it's this little alarm clock. Um, it, it's 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 cream. It's very old. It has the loudest tick you've ever heard and the most annoying ring. And it's wound, it's wind up, but it's an unbelievably efficient wind up mechanism, right? So you just give it like a half a turn and it lasts like 10 years. It's unbelievable. And so the joke is... Every year we gift it to somebody um, and they have, and you wind it up beforehand and they have to have this loud mm -hmm. ticking clock in their house for, for a year. So that's the joke. This Christmas, I had it, I had it last year. The Christmas just gone. I gave it to my dad. So it had made a full loop around and, and got back to him. He was the original gifter. And when I asked him what he was going to do with the bust, he said he was going to embed the clock inside the bust and the bust was going to become the new Christmas gift. So you would have to go to bed every night with this bust of my dad's friend next to your bed and every morning it would ring and wake you up. I've got a couple of things on this. Yeah. First of all, the idea of gifting someone a bust of your own head after your own death is both fantastic, like absolutely fantastic trolling and one of the most terrifying things I could think of, because you might, because you, there are two places that you're going to store it, really, I suppose, or three maybe. One is somewhere in your house. Two is like in your garage if you have one, or three is in your loft if you have one. Yeah. And f the first one is walking around your house, and like if you ever have <laughs> guests, they'll be like, "Who's this?" And it's twice the size of a human head, so that's huge. So it has to be on like a mantelpiece or table or similar. Yeah. Uh, so every time you have to be like, 
that's my mate so and so the other time it would be in your garage or the or the loft which is a similar reaction i think which is you turn the light on in the middle of like november or something to go and find something and you're like oh jesus christ there's a head of a man there's a head of a man in here <laughs> and it will scare you every single time and the second thing is I like both your dad and his friend and who they are as people based purely <laughs> on this story. Yeah, this is a little insight into why I am like I am. Yeah, well, I think that uh, families are just, oh God. I mean, let's not get into that. This isn't a podcast about, about that. Jesus will be here all day. No, it's about uh, <laughs> it's about a dead Earl and a countess with no faces. <laughs> Do you have a premier product or sensational service that Poetry Bloke listeners would love? Advertise with us to reach an audience who love to laugh, are obviously very cool and sophisticated, and have immaculate taste. I mean, they're here listening to this gold, aren't they? Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash advertising to advertise with us today. Sorry, anyway, why? how did we get onto that? You were slagging off the Earl and the Countess for immortalising themselves in stone. Oh yeah, that's what it would do. Anyway, but yeah, right. Philip is very affected by the hands not being in the glove, and he points out that these people would not have guessed that so many people would be walking around their tomb. And that's fair. You can't think of every conceivable option for the future of the world. So, all right, I now get that that they thought it was just going to be seen by the other locals. That actually makes the rest of this make a lot more sense. Great. Don't factor in the sense now. Go with the original. Go with what you wrote originally. Well, you're going to hate my notes. I love your notes. So stanza four, I've just written, I'm lost. Okay. That stanza makes no sense to me. And this is, they would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage, that one. That's exactly the one. And like you say, so they would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage. That just means they're death. So we're back to word count. We're back to getting paid by the word. Rather than say they wouldn't know how long after they'd been dead, he puts in other unnecessary words like supine. Um, This is the one that really got me. The air would change to soundless damage. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Literally doesn't mean anything. The air would change to soundless damage. Turn the old tenantry away. I feel like that's the key one. The old tenantry bit. Yeah, turning the old tenantry away. So turfing out the locals? Yeah, but in a more broader sense. So sort of what happened between the, say, 15th and 16th centuries? Mm. Okay, well, make it a bit more of a hint, I suppose. What sort of government style was in place in the 15th century? Uh, I don't know, Matt, you tell me. (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay, yeah, it's actually hard, very hard to reach for that. Well, so, so, <laughs> so in the 15th century, across most of Europe, feudalism was in place. Oh, okay. I'm with you now. Yeah. I think what he's saying is they wouldn't guess how early in their supine stationary voyage. So they would not guess how soon after their deaths, the air would change to sound as damage, turn the old tenantry away. So they died not expecting a, the revolution, essentially, from feudalism to, um, I don't know what you would call it, but like early capitalism, I suppose, um, with the uh, British Empire and all the rest of it in the 16th century and the European powers, either empire or capitalism, how, however you want to view it. Um, they couldn't have predicted that. Uh, instead, rigidly, they persisted, linked to lengths and breadths of time. 
now he's sort of focusing on how they're they're stuck in time. They're lost in time, stuck in time. They died not expecting any any of these changes way into the future. But not only did they not expect those, they couldn't have even anticipated the changes that happened right after they died, which were monumental. So here we are. We're back. Lo and behold, there's a poet talking about time. Time, love, death. Nature. Nature. These are all the major themes, I'd say. So persisted, linked through length and breadth of time. Snow fell, undated. My note here just says unreadable. What snow fell undated? Well, there's just commas and full stops everywhere. There's words, and then it goes into another line. Oh, I was just—I had a headache after this stanza. I read it like ten times. I had to walk away from it. <laughs> well, remember that. I had to walk away and come back to it. A little technical term here: when a line starts but then ends on another line, it's called enjambement or enjambment in the. Uh, more English style. Normally when that happens, it's for a reason of emphasis. And in this stanza, snow fell undated, light, each summer thronged the glass, a bright litter of bird calls strewed the same, bone riddled ground. So that's why that happens. He's sort of stressing the light and the bright and also the rhyme. What he's saying here is snow snow fell undated because we love time. We know all poets love time. Yeah. And I thought, who's dating snow? Oh, exactly. Like, who cares? Just keeps coming. One year after the other. I was thinking smaller time frames than that. Snow doesn't last very long. That's the whole point of snow. And particularly in Arundel, you probably get snow once or twice a year. It's probably going to last four or five days. Tops. Don't bother dating it, mate. So you're in agreement there. Or are you saying right, it's, it's redundant? Are you saying it's redundant because he doesn't need to say it's undated because no one's dating snow. So you can just get rid of that word. You can just say snow fell. Yeah. yeah. Pretty what much. about light each summer thronged the glass? Didn't I had no idea what that meant. Is it the word thronged? Like, even, even if, well, I know what the word thronged means. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a moron. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> despite despite how I come across on this podcast, I actually am not a moron. Or well, so I'm told. Let's go through this together, right? Let's do this. Let's, let's take this as an educational opportunity for me. Right? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Light. I know what light is. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I assume it means in the sort of photon sense. Yes, it does, yeah. Not the mass sense. Correct, right? okay. yeah. Each summer, uh, I know what each summer is, thronged. So I'm guessing that's like an accumulation, a, a grouping. Yeah. Throngs of the glass. Yeah. And I know what glass is, right? Right. Put them all together. No idea what it means. Light each summer. So each summer there's light. Yep. And it accumulates in the glass. <laughs> yeah, where are they? Where is this poem? What setting? Does this... It's in Arundel. More specifically, it is in within a something. It's in a tomb. It's in a tomb. In a... Well, presumably a castle or a cathedral. cathedral. Or yeah, exactly. Which often have in their windows... Oh, stained glass windows. Stained right. glass windows. So what he's saying is, it light each summer strong in the glass. Light streamed in every summer through the glass. That's it. That's the line. <clears throat> Why tell us that? For effect. It's sort of building up the scene, <laughs> isn't it? And it's also the notion of time, it's the seasons. Yeah? So. Oh, passing of time, right. <laughs> With you. What a fucking long. Oh, um, <laughs> what, a, oh, what a long way round. What a long way round. So, rigid, rigidly, the they persisted through time, linked through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell and dated, 
winter, light each summer, throwing the glass, summer, a bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. Bird calls, prob- Bone-riddled ground. Yeah, sp- spring. So bone-riddled ground, cemetery, or t- the tomb. Cemetery. Cemetery tomb. Then right. it gets a bit weird as oh, well. Okay. It gets a, it's a bit strange. And up the paths, the endless altered people came washing at their identity. This, I think I understood. Oh, okay, good. And I link back to the blurry faces. Interesting. So here I thought, this is where my theme of erosion came. Oh, okay. The washing. So I read that to be, all these people come to this tomb now, and they visit this place, and for some reason they feel they have the right to touch their faces, these stony faces. And over time, a bit like when you see a brass statue, and they always have a very shiny groin, (laughs) and the rest of them is oxidized <laughs> they've been touched in in all those places so it's it's eroded their face to this blur and actually the, the stonemason was probably more than capable of doing faces and i i judged him too quickly as i so often do but i don't know why they altered people i guess because over time people change two things one have you touched the genitals of a brass statue absolutely can you remember specifically which one I mean, there's so many. <laughs> there is a horse and rider. <laughs> Sorry, that's made me laugh. Carry on. There's a horse and rider in Winchester, which, when inebriated, I've fondled. Um, <laughs> that's the only one I can think of, really. I'm sure I've done it other times. And I think it's not an uncommon... In fact, it's not an uncommon thing. I know it's not, because otherwise they wouldn't be shiny. It's not all down to me. I'm not just going around... As a statue perv, <laughs> Rich the statue perv is a great nickname. That's like a that's like local legend status, isn't it? Here, have you heard of Rich the perv? <laughs> yeah, you, you only lose, you only like statues. He's a right statue perv. That one. A second thing, <laughs> more poem relevant, is I think Larkin is being clever with the word altered, meaning changed, is a secondary meaning, and the primary meaning he's trying to get get at by playing around with words a bit is that these people have been to an altar now approaching the tomb they are washing at the identity of the two people in the tomb i think they're are they putting on holy water are they bowing to these people and up the paths the endless altered people came so lots of people going past the altar to receive the sacrament Okay. And then washing at their identity. So then also bowing and perhaps doing the sign of the cross. Uh, I'm not a religious man. I apologize for not knowing all of the uh, right steps. But uh, do they then, yeah, do they then bow and then put on holy water or make the sign of the cross at their identity? The sense of washing, baptismal style or sacrament style? It's a nice idea, Matt, but I don't agree. And as you know, I'm now pretty good, pretty adept at this sort of analysis. And your analysis is just loads of changed people. Yeah, loads of people who weren't there before. Oh, okay. So just new people. Okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> you don't seem okay with it. I was actually just thinking it in my mind. I was playing it through in my mind. I was like, yeah, that's sort of, oh, that works okay. as well, doesn't it? That sort of works. Oh. I mean, I would say to Philip Larkin, if he were around, I'd say, you missed a trick, mate. You should have definitely doubled up on the imagery because mine was super clever. No, I mean, I'm sure maybe he did. We'll never know. That's the problem with poetry, isn't it? We'll never know. And also, as, as a former English literature student, I I don't know this as facts, but I'm like 99% sure that if you're a novelist, 
or poet or playwright or whatever and you become famous and someone writes an essay or dissertation thesis on your work i'm like 99% sure that that person will say things that you never thought of never crossed your mind and you might pick up that thesis and read it and go you know what that's a great point i didn't make that point but it's a great point and now i'm having it <laughs> i would totally do that oh and it's always something i've wondered having never really studied or i haven't really studied english in school obviously. I've, I've always assumed that, that people are arguing about a point that you don't know. And the person who wrote it can change their mind at any point, like you've just said, and just adopt these ideas and make themselves sound cleverer than they were. Whereas, yep, that's the end of that point. <laughs> I mean, you just described every undergraduate course in English literature around this country and possibly the world. Lots of people writing things and then changing the meanings after they've written them. Yeah, very much first year stuff right there. Very worthwhile degree though. Everybody get out there, study that English. Think about it. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Think about it. Interesting line next. Helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age. I can tell you it's difficult to say that. I I know because I sat through the eight takes it took you to read this poem. Yes, it was tricky. Um... As I sat through the 42 swear words <laughs> you've indulged in so far. So unarmorial, I don't actually know what that means. So I'm going to guess. Let me guess. It can mean two things. Mm-hmm. Armour. Mm-hmm. As in... That's as in armour. Armour is in armour. Uh, that's the only thing I've got. I did. I was thinking amour, as in love, but it's spelt differently, isn't it? Yeah, I don't bother thinking of that. Because it's not right. Dom, don't put that in the cut. I don't want to look like an idiot. In fact, unarmorial was obviously the quality of not being something. Armorial relates to heraldry. You know what heraldry is? I am aware of heraldry, yeah. Can you explain heraldry? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> heraldry is coats of arms, essentially, isn't it? When you hmm. had coats of arms. Sorry, I, I'll tell you what happened there, Matt. My phone went off and I checked it. So I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> Where was your commitment? Where was your commitment to this show? Who's texting you? You've got Sorry, no friends. <laughs> was it family? It was actually a work message. Oh, God. And then I had a sip of beer because I'm not actually working tomorrow. Yeah, so I, I got out of the zone, but I'm back in it now. Uh, heraldry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, quick, I'm quickly rereading where we were. You back in the zone. Heraldry. That's it. <laughs> Right. This is absolute carnage for Dom again, yet again. I'll apologise to him now. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll loop back to when I say, you know what heraldry is, and you can say, yes, it's blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to make you look better <laughs> than a shirtless man drinking beer who's looking at his f***ing phone. Oh, swear from Matthew. <laughs> yes, right, but Dom's going to cut this. So No, it's staying in now. Dom, put this in. You know what heraldry means. No, Matt, please explain. Well, heraldry relates to, you know, coats of arms and those symbols and all of that stuff they used to use in the Middle Ages. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So now Larkin is saying that we're not in that age and they are they are left helpless in this hollow. Right, okay. Your head's gone, mate. Your head is gone. My head's gone. My head's gone. My... You're the David Louise of this podcast. <laughs> so that, that then ends. Only an attitude remains. Um, so then into the last stanza... Time is trying to figure them into untruth, so the stone isn't representative of them anymore. Correct. 
That's fair enough with everyone rubbing their faces all the time. And with the poor, poor stone masonry. <laughs> yeah, there's that. But it also means that they're stuck in time, aren't they? Therefore, their time has made them no longer relevant. They're like an untruth in these times. Yeah. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon. And do you know what blazon is? This is quite interesting. I mean, I say, I, um, I say quite interesting. It, it's a word with a definition. Hit me with that word and that definition. A blazon is a coat of arms, but it's also a public proclamation. So Larking being a bit cheeky and clever with the words again by saying that this tomb is their final blazon, not only is it a relic of a heraldic time, it's also their final communication with everybody. So two meanings in the one word there. Interesting. In the loosest possible sense of the word. And what's his final point? Our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. And what does that mean, those, those last two lines? Our almost instinct, almost true. I don't know. <laughs> well, an, almost, I don't know. A, an almost instinct, it feels like it's an instinct, but I'm not sure why. And almost true, pretty straightforward. Pretty, yeah, I pretty mean, straightforward. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's pretty straightforward, yeah. But you know, you get by the time you got to this point in the poem, throwing you the bones there, man. I thought you would just latch onto it and be like, "I love this." Straightforward, the only straightforward bit in this poem. But he's killed you. Well, the last bit is very straightforward. What will survive of us is love. Now that's nice and obvious. There we go. It's also it's it's a nice sentiment. It's literally true as well. The only thing that survives you is your spawn. Is that where you uh, link to love? Yep. I mean, it's not the only way of showing love. There are other forms. There's the one that jumped to mind. <laughs> bronze statues, for example. <laughs> Brass statues. Enormous bronze busts. <laughs> and that's quite a nice sentiment, isn't it? What will survive us is love. Well, it only lasts so long, isn't it? Until people forget about you. Which they don't do if you've got a stone tomb. Yeah, if you've got a blurred face, a stone tomb in Arundel, you're laughing. People remember you for ages to come. Particularly if you hold hands. They're not so silly now, are they, Rich? Not so silly immortalising themselves in stone. Pretty silly letting their faces get ripped off like that. To be fair, I think a brass bust of my own head twice the size as it was in real life. That's really speaking to me, that, that image. I, I love a bit of that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, for next week, I'll, uh, I'll get a picture of Oh, I can't wait. That's going on the Instagram feed, for sure. Mm, I'll ask permission. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Respectful. So... My overall feeling of the poem, I got to the end of this one. I didn't really know why I'd bothered. <laughs> it's a recurring theme, that, isn't it? Some of them, are like, I get it. Some of them, it's a story. It's like, like the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's like, it's a tale, right? I don't really necessarily know what's going on, but I can tell it's a story and they're, they're, they're telling me a story. This is like, you've got to work and you said to somebody, oh, how was your weekend? And they say, oh, I went to Arundel. And you say, oh, yeah, really? And then they tell you the, the most boring anecdote about their trip to Arundel. Yeah, been there. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever talk uh, to your wife about these, the poems that you're reading? Um, yes. Does she ever give you any feedback or insight? She keeps it to herself until after we've recorded because she doesn't like to, she doesn't want to skew my thoughts. For those of you who don't know, my wife and Matt did the same course university they were in fact friends before matt and i were friends she is also able to analyze poetry so yeah she does know she we do talk about them quite often after after the event interesting 
Does she? Why do you ask? I just wondered if she commented on. I'm interested in what she said, basically, and if she commented on your own analysis. She often think. I think her respect for me <laughs> is dwindling week on week. <laughs> she realizes that really <laughs> the the image I'd painted of myself as a well-rounded, sensible, intelligent human being like the theme of this poem is eroding away well it only took her 10 years to realize yeah exactly i mean she's had plenty of opportunity so if she hasn't figured it out that's her fault do you want to hear about philip larkin's life yeah i would actually well here we go philip larkin was born on the 9th of august 1922 in coventry he was the second child second child only son of sydney and eva larkin and Sidney Larkin was city treasurer between the years of 1922 and 1944. Hmm. So that's quite an important job, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, so after leaving school, he went to St. John's College, Oxford. He didn't go to the war, Second World War, because he failed the army medical because of poor eyesight. Oh, I get that. Touch of the dry eye. I don't eye. think he had dry eye, mate. Quite the affliction. <laughs> so he was able to complete his degree without interruption. And he graduated in 1943 with a first-class honours degree in English. What a swat. Yeah, he looks like he actually went to uni and did some stuff, Rich. Unlike, well, I mean, obviously I was a stellar student, but uh, unlike other people that I know. Larkin was one of several poets. Ooh, hang on a minute. Hang on a <laughs> Go minute. On. Don't be casting aspersions. <laughs> I didn't cast any aspersions. I've got a two-one, mate. Well done. The bare minimum of work. That is how the university. I lived with Rich and I can attest that there was the bare minimum of work. But there was actually quite an impressive four to six weeks of cramming where I actually, you, you were quite productive in that period. So I, I wasn't actively worried, but I, but I don't think you left your room a lot during that four to six weeks. Yeah, I did a three-year degree in 18 weeks. <laughs> it, it was quite testy towards the end. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, really, no, no, no joke there. He didn't put any effort in for a long time. But he pulled, he pulled it out of the bag. <laughs> anyway, back to Phil. Larkin was one of several poets, uh, including Kingsley Amos, who wanted to move away from what they saw as overly political poems of the 30s and the overly emotional poems of the 40s. So we're like too political, too emotional. Larkin trained as a librarian and eventually came to be a librarian at the University of Hull on March 21st, 1955. Interesting. A librarian, yeah, you don't really think of that so much these days. I didn't realise there was any training involved. I think it's actually quite intense. Hopefully there's a librarian listening to Is this it? who's now in a rage, apoplectic rage. Yeah, I think you do have to do... No, don't don't, don't be angry. I, I We're acknowledging our ignorance of the profession, uh, but we're not casting any other respect. Speak for yourself, mate. I knew about li- <laughs> I knew about librarians. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, yeah. During the years 1961 to 1971, Larkin contributed monthly reviews of jazz recordings for the Daily Telegraph, mm. which were eventually compiled together and then published. And he also edited the Oxford Book of 20th Century English Verse, published in 1973. Bit cheeky, isn't it? Bit cheeky. 25 years before the end of the century. <laughs> Lazy. His last collection, High Windows, was published in 1974, uh, and this was this work generally sort of cemented his status in English poetry society. His last poem was published in the Times Literary Supplement in December 1977. He received many awards in recognition of his writing, uh, especially in his later years. 
1975, he was awarded the CBE. And in 1976, was given the German Shakespeare Prize. Uh, he chaired the Booker Prize panel in 1977, was made Companion of Literature what's, in 1978. What's the German Shakespeare Prize? Is that... Wow, good point. The German Shakespeare Prize is a prize for the German Shakespeare Society. Larkin chaired the Booker Prize panel in 77. He was made Companion of Literature in 1978. He served the Literature Panel of Arts between 1882. He was made an Honorary Fellow of the Library Association in 1980. In 82, the University of Hull made him a professor. In 1984, he got an Honorary uh, Doctor of Literature from Oxford University and was elected to the Board of the British Library. In December of 1984, he was offered the chance to succeed the previous Poet Laureate, who was, Rich? John Betjeman. John Betjeman, yes. So he was offered the chance to succeed Sir John Betjeman as Poet Laureate, but declined because he didn't want to accept a role with such a high public profile and associated media attention. Yeah. Quite a quiet man. So in mid-1985, Larkin was admitted to hospital and he died of a cancer on the 2nd of December, 1985, in Kingston hull and he was 63 years old. Oh, that's a, yeah. a relatively young age. Well, what a full life he had. Yeah, he really cracked through the old honours towards the end of his life, didn't he? In the 80s. He did, 70s and yeah. 80s, absolutely stonking. Mid-40s onwards. I currently have no honours. Hopefully the latter years of my life are honour-filled like his. <laughs> yes. I'd like to be a companion of literature. It's just that's such a great title. It is a great time. I, I, Hopefully, fingers crossed, you'll get there through this podcast. That'd be lovely. I'd love to be a companion of all literature. <laughs> Good thing to put on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rich, can you take us through your engineer's overview of this poem? Yes, I can. Would you? When I get it up, would you like to um, explain what this is? Every week, after Rich has read through the poem, he writes his own version, which is more succinct and to the point and delivers the key messages of the poem. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Rich his engineer's overview of An Arundel Tomb by Philip Larkin. An Arundel Tomb by Philip Larkin. An earl and a countess are both dead, yet continue with their PDAs. <laughs> their tomb is made from stone. People touch it and have done for a while. It is no longer representative. The end. Beautiful words about a poignant moment. Thank you, Rich. You're very welcome. Join us next week. Matt, sorry, before we, we close the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, final, final um, message. Yeah. Final message. I'd like to uh, offer an apology or, or a correction, if you will. So a few weeks ago, um, for those of you who are up to date, we did a podcast on the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, part one, in which there is a section on emerald ice. Now, I vehemently denied its existence and was very vocal in my anger at uh, its inclusion in a poem and I, uh, I said it was ridiculous. I received a text message from a friend of ours from university the other day who pointed out to me that green ice is actually a thing and exists in Antarctica and he provided me scientific evidence to prove that. And so I would like to apologise to Samuel Taylor Coleridge and to all ancient mariners for my incorrect assertion that green ice doesn't exist. Uh, and I'd like to thank Ben for pointing out to me. Um, and I'd like to thank you all 
for your acceptance of my apology and continued support for my education in poetry. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you, Rich. And thank you, Ben, for always being on the side of science. (laughs) I think we'll leave it there for this week. Please join us next week as we look at Follower by Seamus Heaney. Do you have a well-known poem you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe you've written your own engineer's overview you'd like to share. And if you have an embarrassing poetry-related story, well, then you definitely have to get in touch. Go to poetryblokes.com forward slash submissions now to let us know all about it and you could play a part in the next show. Poetry Blokes is created and hosted by Matthew Adamo and Richard Gochran. Our theme music is Press Start by The Laszlo Project. Buy their music by going to bandcamp.com and searching The Laszlo Project. Our producer is Dominic Gore.